Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. We have a lot to get to. Every Senate race in the country is essentially the most important Senate race in the country, with dozens of election deniers on the ballot and democracy itself hanging in the balance. But not one of them is more critical than the Georgia Senate race. It is the battle that could determine the future control of the upper chamber. And the the debate tonight, just a few moments ago, actually, between the incumbent Democratic senator from Georgia, Reverend Raphael Warnock, and the Republican candidate, Herschel Walker, is the thing that could tip the scales. So the stakes were already high headed into this debate. By the way, it's the only debate the candidates will participate in for a race that could determine which party controls the Senate. In other words, a lot of people have a lot of interest in how this debate went down, especially because for the past few weeks, we have endured a seemingly endless barrage of stories about the Republican candidate in particular, Herschel Walker. There have been reports about domestic abuse allegations, having secret children, paying for an ex-girlfriend to have an abortion because he wasn't ready to be a father, that the ex-girlfriend was also the mother of one of Walker's secret children, and that she had to press Walker to pay for the abortion he asked her to get, and that Walker wanted her to end a second pregnancy, and that Walker, a multimillionaire, pays just above the legal minimum in child support. And, 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 and. It has been a lot, especially three days before early voting starts in the state of Georgia. Walker, who is running on a platform of family values and anti-abortion rights, has issued near constant denials about almost all of these stories. And while this has sent him inching down in the polls, it is not by as much as you might expect. Across all four of the polls taken since October 3rd, when the most recent wave of Herschel Walker stories broke, Walker only fell behind Reverend Warnock by 2.5 percentage points on average. That is well within the margin of error of all of those polls. It is a tight race. Two very different candidates are running neck and neck. And voters will start casting ballots on Monday. Which brings us to the debate tonight. Again, just a few moments ago. And it was nothing short of surprising that in that debate, Senator Warnock chose not to address most of the allegations about Herschel Walker and the abortions and the absentee fatherhood. He chose not to address them with anything more than this, this sort of under-the-radar remark, which came in response to allegations against the senator. Your ex-wife filed a lawsuit asking for increased child support, saying that she had to pay for child care on days that your duties as a senator interfered with your parenting time and citing significant increases in your income. In 30 seconds, what is your response to that lawsuit? Listen, I, um, I went through a divorce, like a lot of people. And while that was a painful period, what came out of that was two amazing children that I just talked to before I came on this stage. And um, my children know that I am with them and for them and that I support them in every single way that a father does. Walker was asked to address some of the allegations about urging and paying for an ex-girlfriend to have an abortion, but this is about all we got on that. 
We're going to start with you, Mr. Walker. A week before this debate, a former girlfriend made public accusations saying you paid for an abortion and that you encouraged her to have another. In an ABC News interview uh, this week, you said that the accusations are, quote, all lies. For the voters watching tonight, can you explain the circumstances surrounding these claims? You have 60 seconds. Well, as I said, that's a lie. And, you know, one most thing I put, I put it in a book. One thing about my life is I've been very transparent, not like the senator. He's hid things. But at the same time, I said that's a lie. And on abortion, you know, I'm a Christian. I believe in life. And I tell people this, Georgia is a state that respects life, and I'll be a senator that, that protects life. He's a Christian, and he believes in life. Full stop. Now, Warnock... Reverend Warnock did not bring up allegations of domestic abuse, violence and spousal abuse, but he, he, Reverend Warnock, was asked about his own child support payments, as you heard earlier, and a claim by Walker that Warnock has spoken ill of law enforcement. And that prompted probably the most interesting exchange of the night. Take a listen. One thing I have not done, I've never pretended to be a police officer. And, and, and I've, never, I've never threatened a shootout with the police. Well, and now I have to respond to that. We are, we are, we are no, moving no, no, on, no. gentlemen. I have to respond to that. And you know what's so funny? I am work with many police officers. <laughs> and at the same time... Mr. Walker, Mr. Walker, Mr. Walker, Mr. Walker, Mr. Walker, excuse me, Mr. Walker, please, out of respect, I I, I need to let you know, Mr. Walker, you are very well aware of the rules tonight. Yes. And you have a prop. That is not allowed, sir. I ask you to put that prop away. Well, it's not a prop. This is real. And he said, I have a prop. I never worked with law enforcement. It is considered a prop, Mr. Walker. Excuse me, sir. Yes. You're very well aware of the rules. Aren't you? Well, Aren't he, you aware of the he rules? brought up the truth. We're, Let's talk about the truth. Th- thank you for putting that yes. prop away. So that was essentially Herschel Walker's strategy during the debate. Heavy on the political theater, light on the substance, and praying that Senator Warnock would go high while he went low. The question is, how does this all pan out in just a few weeks or days? Joining us now is Tia Mitchell, Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ms. Mitchell, thank you for being here tonight. I think... I, I found the debate sort of both shocking, riveting, and confusing in a lot of ways. What was your assessment of how each candidate approached the debate stage and their strategies, respectively? Well, it's clear, number one, Herschel Walker was very well prepared. We know that in the past, you know, sometimes impromptu speaking is not his thing. He can have some rambling, nonsensical answers, but he was pretty focused. He was very well prepared, but it was clear his strategy was to try to tie Senator Warnock to Joe Biden every chance he could. So we saw a lot of references. You can even start hearing the crowd reacting because uh, Herschel Walker kept bringing up Joe Biden anytime he could. I think Reverend Warnock tried his best to, number one, highlight his record. He also tried his best to kind of like humanize himself and humanize the politics. So he was telling stories and talking about constituents and talking about the people he's met along the way that have informed his decision making. But again, really focused on saying, this is what I have done. This is what I've accomplished and pushing back on that line that he is super tied to Joe Biden. He talked a lot about being bipartisan, talked a lot about saying that he would stand up to President Biden if he disagreed and things like that. 
What did you make of Warnock's strategy not to bring up any of the allegations against Walker, which have dominated the national news media? Is that a Georgia specific strategy? Um, tell us a little bit how you how you read that that choice. Yeah, and that's definitely been his strategy throughout these recent controversies. Warnock has responded when asked, but he has not unprompted brought up the allegations against Herschel Walker. I think it's twofold. I think, number one, his campaign has just taken the posture that, you know, these allegations are damning enough on his opponent on their own that there is no need to, like, pour gasoline on the fire. I also think because, you know, in that divorce that Reverend Walker did um, talk about today, there was an allegation from his ex-wife that he ran over her foot and she filed the police report and said he's a great pretender. Now, he did not face any charges. The police said they saw no sign of in injury. But, you know, it's it's an obvious kind of counterpoint should Reverend Warnock bring up the allegations against Herschel Walker. So I think in general, they think it's safer to steer clear. I was surprised, though, as you noted, that it the allegations against Herschel Walker didn't get as much attention in the debate as they received in all the days leading up to it. I think it was a single question with 30 seconds for a response. Do you think, I mean, I, I, let me just ask you one more question before we go, which is, I mean, does to what degree do the allegations make a difference with Georgia voters? To what degree does the debate make a difference with Georgia voters? I mean, how do you see this race play out? Early voting starts on Monday. It, I'm, like, where are we in all this? The, the race seems extraordinarily tight. Yeah, I think the race is going to be tight because Georgia's a swing state and our statewide races tend to be tight these days. I think that, you know, the allegations have definitely hurt Herschel Walker, but we also know that many conservative voters, many Republican voters are still with him. Mm -hmm. And I think there are some voters who may have been on the fence and this debate might have kept them in Herschel Walker's corner because he didn't have any major blunders. Yes, he made comments that, you know, when you fact check them, weren't always accurate. He did flip flop his stance on abortion, so to speak. But there were no major blunders, you know, that could turn off someone who was looking for a reason to support him. So I think that this might have helped some people stay in his camp. But these were people who were more likely to be in his camp starting out. I definitely don't think that either candidate changed any minds tonight. Tia Mitchell, Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tia, thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks for your time. Let us turn now to my wise friend, <laughs> my colleague, host of The Readout, Joy Reid. Joy, thank you for being here tonight. I, I am uh, so glad to be here. Uh, uh, and, and you gave me a great excuse to stay a little longer uh, and watch the debate. Yeah. What did you think of it? So... I think that when you, I think that T is correct, that no minds are going to be changed. And I don't think any minds can be changed in any of these races. People are locked in and Republican voters who are choosing Herschel Walker, he's polling at like 45, 46%. They have already built in any of their feelings about his many, many lies. I pulled up sort of a non-exhaustive list of his lies. I mean, this guy said that he trained at <laughs> Quantico. a long list. It's, this is non-exhaustive. He made up charities and said he gave percentages of his income to charity. Not true, not true, not true. I mean, literally saying that he, he graduated at the top of his class in, in college when he didn't graduate from college, right? And in addition to everything else we know he In addition about. to everything else. And they've already baked that in and said they don't care. Because what Republican voters want is the seat. And, and I think that, that 
the sad thing about it is I think that anyone who's being honest about it understands even, you know, what the lieutenant governor of Georgia said. He's only the candidate because he was cast by Donald Trump. Yeah. And so what you saw tonight was a guy who was heavily scripted. He stuck to the script. He yeah. was told, say these three things, 96 percent, 96 percent, 96 percent, Joe Biden, Joe Biden, Joe Biden. Raphael Warnock voted with Joe Biden 96 yeah. percent of Just the say time. Just say that over and over. Lash Raphael Warnock to yeah. Joe Biden. And yeah. that's your strategy. Yeah. But it's it, and, and to your point, I think we have a quote from Shelley Winter, a black conservative radio show host in Atlanta, considers Herschel Walker a means to an end. Yes, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't look so good for Herschel. But my vote is strictly about control of the Senate, That's period. It. We That's need it. every seat. It's, it's literally about doing the bidding of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump has said he wants the Senate back. And so he's just a vehicle to it. But what, what I think is unfortunate, it does demonstrate a lack of, I don't know, respect for interest in the sort of quality of the politician that you're sending to represent mm-hmm. you. They really don't care. And they don't care. If, and, and by the way, we, we didn't get to the theatrics because there was the SNL moment. Let's not forget, he's Donald Trump, right? He's doing the Donald Trump, so he comes with a prop. Let's say I had a prop. He had this. <laughs> he said, you have one, too. I have one, too. Because I Where mean, can I get one? This, to me, is what's going to be the takeaway from this debate. Because nothing else in it was actually, um, and nothing else moved the debate. But this moment is the moment that's going to get reproduced on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Because it was Herschel Walker doing a Donald Trump. He decided to pull a theatrical move. It elicited absolute laughter. It's ridiculous. He's not a police officer. Yes. So there's no he reason. Plays one on there TV. is no more reason for him to have a badge than it is for there and there is for me. Well, to yeah. And you're not claiming that you're a police officer. But the, 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 I, I, I do want to talk about Warnock's strategy. Because it is consistent with the strategy that we saw. I mean, I thought of Barack Obama in debates where I think a lot of people were frustrated and they said, you're so much smarter than this guy. How come you're not being more aggressive? Why can't you go for the jugular? It's a decision on Warnock's part. And I know Tia Mitchell said part of it is there may be a feeling in the Warnock campaign that there's some vulnerabilities in terms of his past divorce and relationship with his ex-wife. But the excess of scandal that clouds Herschel Walker's candidacy is too rich to stay away from unless you really are making a concerted effort not to have that as part of your strategy. And I wonder if there's something deeper here about expectations for candidates like Barack Obama and like Reverend Warnock. You're absolutely right. And I think this is the difference between the expectations of Democratic voters and the independent voters who choose to vote for Democrats and the expectations of Republican voters. Republican voters don't care if the candidate of their choice is violent toward women. They don't care if he put a gun to the head of his former wife. They don't care if in their minds he's a murderer because they believe abortion is murder. He's a means to an end. And as long as he is the one thing they need him to be compliant, Mm. he will be compliant. He will vote the way Trump wants him to vote. Mitch McConnell wants him to vote, that he will vote the way the party wants him to vote for the ends that those voters want. They don't care who he is or what he is. I don't care if he started off by saying, I want to, you know, I want to start by thanking my Lord Jesus Christ, which is how we started. Doesn't matter. The Christianity isn't even a factor for them, really. But for Democratic voters and the independent voters, and let's be honest, white moderate voters are also going to be the ones voting for um, Raphael Warnock. And that's, he's been actively courting them. And so what you have to be if you're Barack Obama or you're Raphael Warnock is measured, is not angry, is not attacking, is not aggressive. Because for Democratic vote, for Democratic candidates, you know, it is there's a different expectation of dignity. There's a different demand for dignity. And you have to, I mean, remember, 
President Obama, Barack Obama, when he was running, it was said that he was the least angry black man in America. That's the only way he could win. And that is the same charge that Raphael Warnock. Well, that idea of the angry black man hangs over. It clouds kind of, I think, the way that incredibly accomplished black candidates feel they have to comport yep. themselves. There's also the question of what Herschel Walker's candidacy does to the sort of world of black politics. And I want to read an excerpt from a USA Today editorial today, which is rather scathing. For some Republicans, any warm body that can be used as a pawn is sufficient. The fact that Herschel Walker happens to be black is an irony too delicious to resist for some voters who have chosen to rally behind one of the most unqualified political candidates in recent memory. In a community that has fought against stereotypes of violence, criminality, intellectual inferiority, and sexual sexual promiscuity, Walker is an embarrassment. The idea of being judged by the worst examples in your community is not a burden with which most Americans are familiar. As a political leader, Walker would be a representative of the black community by default, whether he intends to represent the community or not, and whether the black community wants it or not. I mean, talk about that for a second. The idea that if Herschel Walker, even right now, he's a representative of the black community by default because we're talking about him. He's the Republican candidate for Senate. What is his candidacy? What does he mean to white Republicans? And what does he mean to, you know, the black community if he's actually elected? And here's the reality. What did he mean to Donald Trump? Yes. Donald Trump is the person who is the casting director for much of the Republican field. And so he told you what he thinks of black men. He's athletic. He's compliant. He might be a little violent. Right. But he's 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 going to forward the interests of the the same white voters, the same white folks who love Donald Trump. He will never in any way interrupt the drive toward a white Christian nationalist nationalist agenda. agenda. He will he will comply with that agenda. Number one, because he's never going to think through an alternative agenda and he would never defy that agenda. That's the perfect black candidate. Right. Because you could say, I'm not racist. I voted for the black guy. Right. But it's the black guy who will never, ever question or interrupt the drive toward the, the white Christian nationalist agenda that Donald Trump himself believes in. I mean, Donald Trump casted the one Muslim candidate. Right. He casted somebody who's simply an entertainer. Okay, maybe he pushed some supplements that might 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 hurt you rather than help you. Maybe, you know, a few dogs got hurt in the process, but he's compliant. He'll do what I say. And so it's okay to be a minority. It's fine. They want you in the party, but you must be compliant. Think about the non-compliant, high-level black man in the Republican Party that you can think of in the most recent era. It's Michael Steele. You know what happened to Michael Steele? He stopped being compliant. He got the boot. Yeah, you have to. The compliant piece is the important piece. All of that stuff about Christianity, that's performative, because if they truly believed in the dogma that they're saying they believe in, he would be unacceptable. Not just the violence against women, not just the abortion, but the fact that he hasn't taken care of his children. And you know what? That's a stereotype of black men, too, that black men don't take care of their children. Completely untrue. But he lives down to it. And that's awfully convenient as well for what Donald Trump thinks about black people. And what other white Republicans may think of black people. It's why they love Donald Trump. It's a really destructive, it feels like a really destructive moment um, for the country, for people of color. Uh, The race goes on. Early voting begins Monday. Joy, there's no better person to talk to about this. Live reaction from one of my favorite people. Thank you for joining me, my friend. Host of The Readout. It's always good to see you. It's always great to see you. 
We have much more ahead, including disturbing differences between what members of the Secret Service knew about trouble brewing ahead of January 6th and what they told Congress. January 6th committee member Zoe Lofgren joins us next. Stay with us. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Meet Janice. Unfortunately, her thing is sneeze attacks every time spring returns. I literally sneezed 40 times in a row once. Luckily for Janice, at the Walmart pharmacy, she can get over-the-counter allergy relief for things like sneezing, runny nose, and watery eyes, fast with online pickup or delivery. No more suffering? That's nothing to sneeze at. (laughs) I see what you did there. Help survive allergy season with fast online pickup or delivery from Walmart. Welcome to an easier pharmacy. Welcome to your Walmart. The Secret Service is the law enforcement agency trusted to such an extraordinarily high degree that it is in charge of protecting the president's life. The agency's motto is literally worthy of trust and confidence. But new revelations from the January 6th committee have raised significant doubts about whether the agency is actually living up to its stated goals. Even before January 6th, there was public reporting that President-elect Biden sought to change his presidential Secret Service detail Partly, partially out of concerns that certain agents had exhibited loyalty to President Trump. This summer, we learned that the agency had somehow lost all of the text messages from agents' phones on January 5th and 6th. And then at yesterday's January 6th hearing, the committee outlined major discrepancies between the testimony it heard from members of the Secret Service and the evidence the committee has gathered. Committee member Adam Schiff asserted that, quote, Certain White House and Secret Service witnesses previously testified that they had received no intelligence about violence that could have potentially threatened any of the protectees on January 6th, including Vice President Pence. But that testimony is now in direct conflict with agency emails that have been obtained by the committee. These are quotes from a Secret Service email 10 days before January 6th. Quote, they think that they will have a large enough group to march into D.C. and will outnumber the police so they can't be stopped. Quote, their plan is to literally kill people. Please, please take this tip seriously and investigate further. Quote, the Proud Boys have detailed their plans on multiple websites. A week before January 6th, the Secret Service received an email showing that the U.S. Marshal Service is seeing a lot of violent rhetoric on Parler directed at government people, entities, and in addition to our protected persons. Just to be clear here, the day before the riot, Secret Service Communications warned specifically about threatening online chatter focused on Vice President Mike Pence. On the morning of January 6th, agents received a warning about online comments that Vice President Pence was, quote, a dead man walking. Now, this all comes amid new reporting by NBC News about contacts between members of the Oath Keepers and the Secret Service. NBC reports that it was not only one member of the far-right militia group corresponding directly with the Secret Service, as revealed in this week's sedition trial. Rather, multiple members of the Oath Keepers were in touch directly with the Secret Service. 
The January 6th committee has now asked the Secret Service to provide records of all the contacts between the Secret Service and members of a militia group that has been accused of seditious conspiracy against the United States. Joining us now is Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, a member of the January 6th committee. Congressman Lofgren, thank you so much for being here uh, tonight and, and spending your Friday evening with us. Let me just first start with the number of records that you have received from the Secret Service. I believe it's one million pieces of electronic communication in the past two weeks. And that is on top of 800,000 pages of material since July. Now, on one hand, that seems like a lot of uh, material and important evidence for the committee. But on the other hand, I wonder whether that also might be an attempt to overwhelm the committee with just a mountain of evidence. Do you see anything at all potentially uh, undermining in the volume of material that's been given to the committee? I will say the interaction between the Secret Service and the committee has been cause for concern. Uh, we didn't realize until uh, the inspector general gave a report that they had erased all the phones uh, after committees had told them to keep all their records. And as we mentioned yesterday in our hearing, the Department of Justice told them to preserve all the evidence. And what was in that, that they would uh, defy that order and violate the law, it's a question we still have. We didn't get very much information until finally we subpoenaed them. Then we got some information, and it wasn't until over the Labor Day weekend when um, several of us really uh, threw a, a huge fit uh, and discussed this with higher ups in the department that we started to get a huge volume of material. Uh, millions, as you have pointed out. Um, I don't know what whether, um, well, I, I won't speculate. It was not easy to go through all that information, but I want to give a credit to uh, the staff that worked nights and weekends, uh, and we actually did go through and sort out uh, material, and there was some important material that we found, some of which we showed in our hearing on Thursday. Uh, the evidence that we got does not necessarily um, mesh with some of the testimony that we received. And so we will be seeking uh, some clarification from witnesses. Yeah, I, I want to talk more about that. But in terms of the, the cooperation from the Secret Service, from the agency, can you tell you said it, you weren't getting anything until you threw a fit? Did they have a response? Did they have an explanation about why they'd been holding on to over a million electronic records that ended up being very pertinent to your investigation? I thought they were uh, lame excuses, but I will say once the secretary and the uh, special counsel that he appointed to oversee this got involved, uh, the information really started to flow. Um, speculating as to their rationale would not be useful at this point. I, I will just say that there is some concerning um, uh, issues. I mean, for example, they represented that there was no monitoring of social media, that they didn't know anything. Well, that's clearly not the case. We've got the evidence that they were, that they didn't know anything about the threatened violence. Well, clearly they did. Um, I mean, putting aside the threats that they knew about, 
certainly even the day before. They saw the armed people that were arriving and uh, they did not take steps uh, to properly protect not only their protectees, but uh, the Congress. And um, so we have a lot of questions about uh, the agency. But I do want to say this, that those questions should not be uh, read to to impugn the integrity and the hard work of many fine individual agents who serve bravely and uh, and courageously in their jobs. Yeah. And, and you have gone out of your way to say that there is uh, courage and integrity among certain agents in the in the agency, if you will. But you also told my colleague, Nicole Wallace, today there's a problem in the agency. And I wonder, do you believe that problem is widespread? When you talk about re-interviewing witnesses, are we talking about one or two people or is it more than that? Well, some of it is, you know, we want to know who did what, when and why. uh, But there may also be a culture problem in the agency. For example, we didn't present this yesterday, but uh, subsequent to the riot, I mean, you remember, uh, Kevin McCarthy was talking to the president and the president was trying to say, well, this is Black Lives Matter and Tifa. And McCarthy said, no, these are your people. They just ransacked my office. Everybody knew what happened. But uh, agents said, well, could this have been Antifa? I mean, these are Trump supporters who were blind to what was going on because of their political beliefs. And that's dangerous. Uh, because if you can't see what is before you, you can't act to protect those who are in your care. Well, I mean, and let's talk explicitly. There were death threats against the vice president and they were with them. They basically led the vice president to a place that could have been a death trap. I mean, I, I guess I just wonder in your estimate. Was. Uh, yeah. He was minutes away, actually. Uh, you, I think you probably recall the... Um, exchange between the agents and the emergency operations center at the White House where agents were fearing for their own lives and hoping to get messages to their families. They came very close to all of them being uh, victimized. Uh, That the vice president and his small team of protective secret service uh, people were sent in to the Capitol when they knew that uh, an armed mob of thousands of people was going to be sent uh, to their to, to attack them. I mean, it's pretty shocking and and leads to a lot of questions. Yeah, I'm, the questions about willful blindness and intentionality. Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, a member of the January 6th committee, thanks so much for your time and thoughts this evening, Congresswoman. Thank you. Still to come, elections officials fear an onslaught of aggressive election deniers harassing voters and poll workers in November. And that doesn't even count the aggressive election deniers who are on the ballots themselves. What to watch for 25 days before the midterms. And we have new reporting tonight about a second witness who is cooperating with the DOJ investigation into Trump's documents and concerns that Trump was flying some of those documents around the country. Yes, really. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. Yes. 
stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Meet Janice. Unfortunately, her thing is sneeze attacks every time spring returns. I literally sneezed 40 times in a row once. <laughs> Luckily for Janice, at the Walmart pharmacy, she can get over-the-counter allergy relief for things like sneezing, runny nose, and watery eyes, fast with online pickup or delivery. No more suffering? That's nothing to <laughs> sneeze at. <laughs> I see what you did there. Help survive allergy season with fast online pickup or delivery from Walmart. Welcome to an easier pharmacy. Welcome to your Walmart. Election Day is less than a month away, which means the country is less than a month away from finding out whether the overwhelming number of Republican nominees for office across the country who are on record as denying or questioning the 2020 election results, whether those candidates will actually be elected. They are more than half of the Republican field, according to The Washington Post. 538.com did a similar analysis, but framed the results slightly differently, saying that 60% of American voters will have at least one election denier on their ballot this fall. But Republicans haven't just corrupted ballots across the country with anti-democratic election deniers. They're also planning to flood polling places with them. Check out this report from Reuters. Interviews with more than two dozen election officials revealed an intensifying grassroots effort to recruit activists. This has heightened alarm that disturbances in this year's primary contests could foreshadow problems in November's local, state, and national races. The Reuters reporting focuses on Arizona, North Carolina, and Nevada, which are three key states this cycle. And here's what they report about Arizona. During early voting in Arizona's Pima County, an election observer was told to put away binoculars. Another was caught looking at private voter data, and another was asked to stop making comments about fraudulent elections. And they also cite multiple complaints from voters that individuals were shouting at them from outside the 75-foot circumference around polling stations where interaction with voters is banned. That all reportedly happened during Arizona's primaries. But imagine what could happen in November now that there are election deniers in all of the top of the ticket statewide races. We're not just talking about Carrie Lake, the Republican candidate for governor who's made election denialism the centerpiece of her campaign and who's now polling neck and neck with Democratic candidate Katie Hobbs. We're also talking about Mark Fincham, the Republican nominee for secretary of state, which is, of course, the office in charge of overseeing elections. Fincham says that he, if he wins, he wants to use that office's unilateral authority over state election equipment to require that all future ballots be counted by hand. For an indicator here, Arizonans cast more than 3.4 million ballots in the 2020 presidential election. A hand count. What could possibly go wrong? This is what happened in one Nevada county during this year's primaries, according, again, to Reuters. People with night vision goggles stood outside the registrar's building and aimed their cameras at election workers counting votes on primary night in June. Now, Nevada, of course, is one of the key states for party control of the U.S. Senate and the Republican candidate for Senate, a former state co-chair for Trump, who filed lawsuits to over 20, or overturn the 2020 election results. He could potentially flip that seat out of Democratic hands. And then there's North Carolina, another key state, again, in terms of party control of the Senate and currently one of the closest races in the country. 
According to Reuters, officials in 16 North Carolina counties reported unusually aggressive poll watchers this spring. In one county, quote, observers demanded to inspect voting machine tabulators in violation of state election laws. Others repeatedly grilled poll workers or demanded to take pictures inside voting stations. When they were told to stop, they said they were following guidance from a Republican Party lawyer. This is apparently the playbook. The Democratic Party tells Reuters they've hired five staffers to work in those three states, as well as two others who have faced growing threats to the Democratic process. But is that enough? There are 25 days till Election Day. Strap yourselves in and also maybe consider volunteering to help out election workers in your state because they obviously need you. Okay, we have much more ahead, including new questions about whether former President Donald Trump took even more documents, ones that rightfully belong to the federal government, to even more places. That's next. When we talk about Donald Trump, we may imagine the former president ensconced at his Palm Beach Club Mar-a-Lago. But the truth is, Donald Trump has been golfing at his New Jersey golf club, Bedminster. He's been staying at Trump Tower in New York City while being deposed in a probe of his business dealings. He's been playing golf at his property in Virginia. And just this past week, he's been holding rallies in Nevada and Arizona. Trump's whereabouts are of national interest right now because we have new reporting today from The Wall Street Journal that federal agents have expressed concern that Trump may have been taking important government documents with him on planes as he traveled to Trump Tower in New York and to his Bedminster property in New Jersey. Now, I will note that NBC News has not independently confirmed this report, but the idea that Donald Trump may have whisked away critical government documents to multiple properties, that brings us a new wrinkle in this never-ending saga. The Wall Street Journal also reports today that according to a person familiar with the matter, there are reportedly not one but two Trump aides who are witnesses in the Justice Department's ongoing criminal investigation of Trump's handling of classified documents. The Washington Post had reported earlier about one of those witness, witnesses who reportedly moved government documents at Mar-a-Lago from the storage room to Trump's residence at the request of Trump himself. And that Trump himself apparently then went through the boxes personally and removed some of them. So we are now talking about the potential of multiple properties involved in this scandal and now multiple witnesses. How do we decipher it all? Joining us now is Barb McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Barb, thanks as always for being here and thanks in advance for your wisdom. Oh, you bet, Alex. Thanks for having me. So what does it mean practically in, in terms of the Justice Department's fear or investigators' fear that some of these documents may have been flown effectively, courtesy of Air Trump, to New York and New Jersey? Does that mean they're trying to cultivate witnesses? Does that mean this entire thing may expand to new states with new judges? What can you tell me from a legal perspective how this affects things? Well, two thoughts come to mind. One is they know that some of the documents are still missing because they keep records of what they have. So uh, they know that, that some things on their list have still not been returned. They know that they also had empty file folders that tended to appear uh, to have previously contained documents that are no longer there. So 
they clearly believe that some of these documents have not yet been returned. And now the question is, where are they? And they know that Donald Trump has not just his Mar-a-Lago property, but all these others. So the second thing I think that is happening here is they are trying to develop probable cause to search some of these other locations. You can't just go in and search based on a hunch or a suspicion. You have to have witnesses who say, or some other evidence that can show that there is a reasonable grounds to believe that evidence will be found at those locations. If they can get a witness to say, oh yeah, I know that Donald Trump took some of these documents with him when he went on a trip to Bedminster or he went on a trip to, a trip to Trump Tower, that could provide the probable cause they need to get a search warrant for those locations so that they could look for the documents there. The unmasking of these two witnesses down at Mar-a-Lago, in your professional opinion, do you think that has a chilling effect on future potential witnesses, say in Bedminster or Trump Trump Tower, or does it have an emboldening effect? I, I, as, a, as a prosecutor, we always sought to protect the identities of witnesses. I know oftentimes uh, people believe or suspect that it's the government that is leaking information or the names of people, but I can't believe the government is leaking the names of witnesses uh, that could get burned here or e even harmed. And even if, you know, Trump isn't going to do anything to hurt them, there are all kinds of people out there in the world uh, who can be really spun up by this and try to harm them, threaten them, harass them. And so I think this has a chilling effect on other witnesses. Those who might be willing to stick their neck out and say what they saw or what they know might be less inclined to do so if they think that it is going to, they're going to be outed and ostracized and maybe even threatened or harassed. What, I mean, when we think of the fact that Trump is reviewing these documents down in Mar-a-Lago and may have chosen specific documents to take with him to points north, how does that reframe all of this in terms of the intentionality and the involvement of the, the potential involvement of the president in a, an obstruction case? Um, I, I think it does a couple of things, Alex. I mean, one, it really dispels any defense that Trump might have had that he didn't know what was in these boxes. You know, I think in the very early stages, uh, people might have been inclined to believe that, you know, a lot of stuff just got boxed up in the chaos of January 20th when he was moving out. Things got thrown in boxes. Who knows what was there? Uh, and now they're trying to negotiate the return of those documents. Um you know, if he is the one who's removing things, going through them, uh, transporting them from point A to point B, then I think it becomes much harder to dispel that. I also think it, it can account for an aggravating factor. You may recall that when Jim Comey uh, stated, quite famously, that the FBI was recommending against charging Hillary Clinton, he said the reason for that was that even though uh, one could charge somebody for being grossly negligent in handling classified documents, when they look at the history of all the cases that have ever been charged, no case has ever been charged in the absence of some aggravating factor. And those aggravating factors could include a willful violation of the law, storing them in such a way as to risk exposure or obstruction of justice. If you look at those factors here, Trump is three for three if he is doing what he is alleged to be doing. Not the batting average that he wants. Uh, Barb McQuaid, <laughs> always good to see you. Former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Thanks for your time on this Friday night, Barb. Thank you, Alex. Just ahead, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis tried to own the libs by sending planes full of Venezuelan migrants to Massachusetts. But it turns out Ron DeSantis might have owned himself. Why that stunt may be backfiring is up next. Nearly 50 Venezuelan nationals found themselves stranded in Martha's Vineyard last month. They were flown there from Texas aboard two planes after reportedly being told they would receive money and housing, food, and the opportunity to find work. 
We now know, of course, that they were transported to Martha's Vineyard by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis as part of a political stunt, a political stunt that appears to be backfiring in spectacular fashion. DeSantis, along with other Republican governors, has been pushing for blue states and sanctuary cities to pay their, quote, fair share to house and help migrants. But in the process of dehumanizing migrants to score political points, it appears DeSantis may be unintentionally helping them instead. That's because the sheriff's office in Bear County has opened a criminal investigation into the flights and is now certified that the migrants who were tricked into boarding planes to the vineyard are the victims of a crime. The migrants had been expected to pursue asylum claims, but now, thanks to Governor DeSantis, they're also eligible to apply for special U visas, which are reserved for victims and witnesses of crimes. The visa would also prevent them from being deported until their cases are settled and put them on a path to citizenship. In addition to DeSantis's stunt potentially helping the migrants, it is now also the subject of a Treasury Department probe looking into whether DeSantis may have misused COVID-19 relief aid to fund the flights. You know what they say about karma. That does it for us tonight. Rachel will be back on Monday, and I will see you on Tuesday. Meet Janice. Unfortunately, her thing is sneeze attacks every time spring returns. I literally sneezed 40 times in a row once. Luckily for Janice, at the Walmart pharmacy, she can get over-the-counter allergy relief for things like sneezing, runny nose, and watery eyes, fast with online pickup or delivery. No more suffering? That's nothing to sneeze at. (laughs) I see what you did there. Help survive allergy season with fast online pickup or delivery from Walmart. Welcome to an easier pharmacy. Welcome to your Walmart.